Turn your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. We will. Um, we're actually going to cover Genesis 35 and 36. We won't read all of that, um, but I am going to read uh, all of chapter 35. So, uh, if you're able, uh, and maybe I should add, and willing, uh, please stand as we read God's word together. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around him, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, uh, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because... There God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. There God, I mean, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it, poured oil on it, and Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel when they were still uh, some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It's the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. 
And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we pray that you would grant us your spirit now that we might hear and know and understand your word, that it might change and conform us more and more into the image of Christ, for it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. There are um, too many people in the world, even those who are uh, Christians, who claim to be Christians, who um, think that God is out to get them. Uh, They're convinced that God is sort of the, the, the cosmic school principal, wandering the halls, you know, clipboard in hand, taking names, looking for people who are doing things they aren't supposed to be doing in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they're just convinced. They're just waiting. God's just, just waiting for you to do something wrong so they can zap you, so they can get you back, so they can uh, pay you back for um, disobedience. This passage shows us a very different God, a very gracious and merciful, a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. Notice, first of all, your sermon title, He Forgets Not His Own. I've stolen that line from the song we're going to sing after the sermon. And I'm also using it in the outline as well. God, First of all, God forgets not His own despite their failures. Look at verse 1. What does God tell Jacob to do in verse 1? He says, get up, pack up, and go up to Bethel. Now already, you know uh, at least uh, one thing about Jacob at the beginning in verse of chapter 35. You know he's not in Bethel. Because God wouldn't give that command if he was already in Bethel. Here's why that matters. Technically, he should have been. Bethel has been the target, has been the aim all along, ever since leaving Bethel, ever since his vision of the ladder with the angels riding up and down this ladder. Ever since then, the aim has been to get back to Bethel, get back to that place. Instead, he kind of steps into the the promised land, meets Esau, steps back out of it again, and then steps back in again, but only as far as Shechem. So you have this picture already. Jacob's in the promised land. He's in Canaan, but he's in Shechem still. And technically, he was supposed to have already been in Bethel. That's been the aim. That's been the target all along. Partial obedience is technically disobedience. Partial obedience is not obedience. And he's, he's, he's kind of gone halfway. He's gone partway. He's kind of gone, well, I'm in the promised land, so surely that's good enough. I mean, this is close enough, right? I'm in the, the state I'm supposed to be in. Maybe I'm not in the town I'm supposed to be in, but I'm in the... It's pretty close. But there's a second part to God's command as well. Not only should Jacob and his household 
get up, pack up, go up to Bethel. But once he's there, he's commanded to build an altar. They're supposed to get up and follow God in essence to Bethel. And once they're there, build an altar to worship God and Him alone. Bethel means house of God. It seems like an appropriate place to worship God and Him alone. But there's the problem. Jacob's family. Um, notice in verse 2, he commands them, put away your foreign gods. They should have been serving and worshiping God alone anyway. And yet they have these foreign gods. So literally when when, when um, Simeon and Levi and their brothers went through and killed all the males in Shechem, and when they plundered and took everything from Shechem, evidently they took their household gods as well. They decided they could just blend these foreign gods into their own religion. They'll, they'll take not only their stuff, not only their possessions, not only their money, but we might as well take their gods too. We'll take their idols too. And we can just add them to our collection. The, the first problem with God's command in verse 1 and then Jacob's command to his family in verse 2 is that they had foreign gods at all. They're worshiping, it appears, these idols, these images the foreign gods of the people around them. There's a, there's a second problem. And I hope it's, it's equally as obvious. Jacob, the head of his household, knew it and didn't care. He, he, he knew they had foreign gods because as soon as God says, look, get up, pack up, go up to Bethel, and once they are build an altar and worship me, immediately he goes to his family and says, put away your foreign gods. See, how much better it would have been if he had gone and said, do you have foreign gods? Wouldn't that have been a little bit better? Instead, he knows his family is worshiping foreign gods. He knows that, that, that they've taken these idols from from the people of Shechem and have been worshiping them or or sort of adding them to their collection, whatever it is exactly they've been doing. We saw this in the last chapter. Jacob wants peace at the expense of truth. Jacob wouldn't confront Shechem for raping his daughter. Jacob wouldn't confront um, uh, uh, Hamor for not rebuking his son. I mean, it, he wants peace just at the expense of truth. He won't address the, the difficult issues of his family's life. And here he's peace at the expense of truth. They have foreign gods in his household and he's perfectly content with that because we're at peace. We're not fighting about it. We're not, we're not arguing with each other. There's no family conflict over worship or over these idols. 
what, I, what idols are you worshiping? We, we kind of go, oh, I don't do that. I worship God and Him alone. Or, or if we're young enough, we go, well, I don't have any little statues. I don't have any like wooden carved Buddhas in my room. I don't have any wooden carved images that I actually sort of bow down and chant and light in. I don't, I don't do that. See, I'm not like these people because these people have little idols and figurines and, and that was their worship. Are we not? Do we not seek the praise of men rather than God's honor and glory? That's, that's an idol. Will we not pursue money or fame or fortune or, or any other thing in its place? Maybe it's peace at the expense of truth. As long as my family's happy and quiet and nobody's arguing, then everything's great. Sex or power or fame or authority or honor or... I mean, we fill in the blank. It could be anything. And in fact, my guess is for everyone in the room, it's probably something a little bit different. But we all have our idols. We all have those things that we seek. Anything that, that takes the honor, the attention, the glory, the praise that God deserves away from us is an idol. Anything that we would seek or pursue with all our heart, joy, strength, energy is an idol. I don't, I don't mean to say that Christians can't struggle with depression. I don't mean to say Christians don't have suicidal thoughts. I'm not saying that at all. But Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade had all of those things. They had fame. They had fortune. They have their name on a store. They have their name on a television show. They have money. They had everything. It wasn't enough for them. If, if that's what you're seeking, it will fail you. Bob Dylan was right. You've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Bob Dylan's one Christian album, his one Christian moment, if you will. Jacob's household is trying to... Maybe they're trying to split time between worshiping these idols and worshiping God. Or maybe they've, they've turned their backs on God and are worshiping the idols. Only. It doesn't matter. The point is, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and blank. Money, fame, fortune, my own, uh, my own honor and glory, my own prestige, for everyone to think I'm great and wonderful. Parents, dads especially, this has particular application to you. Know the idols of the people in your household. And do everything in your power. You can't control their hearts. You can't change them. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But you use every means of God's appointment to rid your house of those idols. And yet, God called Jacob anyway. 
He forgets not His own despite our failures. But He also forgets not His own despite our fears. Do you remember how the last chapter ended? For me, I don't even have to turn a page. Look at the very end, the very last verse of uh, Genesis 34. Look at, look at verse 30 of the last chapter. Uh, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Jacob's greatest fear. Simeon and Levi go and um, kill all the men in Shechem, and then their brothers join in for the raiding party, and they kind of steal everything. His only rebuke was, look what you've done to me. You've made all the people around us not like me. You've you've made me a stench in the nostrils of the people around me. But now read verse 5 of chapter 35. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of of Jacob. Jacob's greatest fear never happened. Jacob's greatest fear never came true. In fact, the opposite is true. Not only is Jacob marching now from Shechem to Bethel, afraid of the people around them, instead they're afraid of him. God in his common grace withholds their anger. He, he as, it, as it, you know, sort of puts His hands over their mouths, ears, eyes, so that they tremble in fear as Jacob and his sons, as his family, his household, march towards Bethel. Do you remember? Do you remember the promise God made to Jacob? At the end of... Uh, chapter 28, God, Jacob sees this ladder. He has this whole vision of uh, the ladder, angels, and God reiterates the promise made to Abraham and Isaac. He reiterates it there to Jacob. And he said to Jacob in Genesis 28, 15, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I, until I have done what I have promised you. We summarized it like this. Wherever, whenever, forever, God would be with Jacob. God would keep him. Guard, God would guard and protect him wherever, whenever, forever. That doesn't mean your life will never have hiccups. That, that doesn't mean... Your life's not going to have trouble. It doesn't mean that a, that a bump in the road means, oh no, God's turned His back on me. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't always mean that God will deliver you from difficulty or oppression. But it does mean that He'll deliver you through it. God promised to Jacob in Bethel, 
that he would be with him until he brought him back to Bethel. And so now here on the last leg of the trip from Shechem to Bethel, as his greatest fear, these people are going to attack us because now look what you've done. Instead, they're all afraid of him. He grants Jacob safe passage from his enemies through enemy territory. Don't forget the audience, the original audience of this book. Moses is writing somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. The Israelites have been delivered from Pharaoh, from Egypt, from slavery, and are on their way to the promised land. And Moses is inspired by the Holy Spirit writing the book of Genesis to those people who are traveling through enemy territory on the way to Bethel. On the way to Bethlehem. On the way to the promised land. This would have been incredibly comforting and encouraging to the Israelites. Their greatest fear. Okay, wait. We had, we had food, we had places to live, and now we're in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And you know, there are giants in that land. And there's a lot of enemies between here and there. And there are a lot of people that are going to want to do harm to us. This passage says, just as Jacob made the trip safely, so too can you. Just as God protected Jacob, was with him wherever, whenever, forever, the same promise is made to the Israelites. God's promise still stands with you. We end every worship service with a benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The exact same word that He gave to Jacob. Yes, you're going out into enemy territory. Yes, the world is opposed to the Gospel. It always has been. But you don't go alone. God is with you. Enemies, that's not the only fear in this chapter. There's another. It's another common fear. Something we all face at some point or another something we all will have to deal with but there's the, always the fear of death among mankind and there are three deaths painful deaths in this chapter you, you notice in verse 8 there's almost almost a, a random offhand comment every now and then you bump into that in scripture you you read a verse and you think to yourself I don't how does that connect with what I just read or what I'm about to read? In some ways, verse 22 is going to be the same way. Verse 8 seems like almost like, oh, by the way, Deborah, Rachel's nurse, I mean, Rebecca's nurse, she died. Deborah had been with Jacob's mom since she left her family to go and marry Isaac. She's a family member. She was... Rebecca's nurse. Now, evidently, Rebecca died already at some point when Jacob was gone. Rebecca has already passed away. This is this is the, the closest tie to his mom. Remember, Jacob was his mom's favorite child. Esau was his dad's favorite. Jacob was his mom's favorite. And this is his mom's already dead. This is the last sort of tie, the last connection to his mother. 
And then verse 8. She dies before they get to Bethel. And they bury her under an oak tree. Isaac, of course, would have been the next tie, the next connection to his mother. And at the end of the chapter, verses 27 to 29, Isaac, too, at 180 years old, breathes his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. The last time we see Esau actually sort of present in the text, yes, the next chapter is his descendants, but the last time we really see Esau present in Scripture is right here as he and Jacob work together to bury their father. Death is, um, you know this, death is no uh, respecter of persons. Death reaches all of us unless Christ comes back first. If not you, a, a loved one. And in verses 16 to 18, Jacob's favorite wife dies in the middle of childbirth. He worked seven years to receive, to get Rachel as his wife. And, and you recall, the text tells us those seven years felt like they just flew by because of his great love for Rachel. He didn't even notice that it was seven years. It, it passed like that. Of course, then he got cheated and had to work another seven years for Rachel because Leah... Their father replaced Rachel with Leah on their wedding night. So then he had to put 14 years in to get Rachel as his wife. And here she is giving birth to her second son. Leah had six. Bilhah and Zilpah, their servants, had two each. And at this point, until Benjamin's birth, Rachel, the beloved wife, just had the one son. And as she dies with her last breath, she names him Benoni, son of my sorrow. Jacob renames him to Benjamin, son of my right hand. A title that should have belonged to Reuben, the firstborn. Instead, it belongs to Benjamin, the, the lastborn. He quickly becomes the favorite. He quickly becomes the, the favored child, Jacob's favorite child. The last son born to his favorite wife. The son born as she breathed her last. Three people near and dear to Jacob pass away in this chapter. Death stings. Death hurts. Death is painful to walk through. Death reaches into every household, every family. Death brings great sorrow. And, and for many of us, even as believers, we struggle to fear it. We know it's a reality. And yet we, we still, in the back of our minds, live in fear of death itself. But even this fear of death, even Jacob's greatest, most painful loss didn't bring an end to God's promises. 
didn't bring an end to God's work in Jacob's life. Because God still brings Jacob safely to Bethel, still brings him safely to Hebron where his father is, still brings him safely to Ephrath, to Bethlehem. Jacob's loss doesn't mean that God had forgotten him. We far too often think, God, where were you? If you had only been here, you could have stopped that. How come you didn't? We, 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 we accuse them of not caring or not being present because we deal with the loss of a loved one in death. There's no indication of that at all. He's there. His promises. He forgets not his own despite our greatest fears. But then he also forgets not his own despite our foes. God's people always have opposition. We generally think of them as out there, as, as opposition that are outside the church. You know, there's a warning in Acts 20 uh, when Paul calls the elders from the church in Ephesus together and he meets with them. He warns them that there will be um, wolves that try to get into the church and drag the sheep away. And then he warns them there will be false teachers even from among you, even from among your own number, who will rise up and lead others astray. That seems to be what happens in verse 22. There's this random comment, seemingly it's random in our minds, while Israel, that's the person Jacob, lived in the land. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel, that is Jacob, heard of it. That's not an act of lust. And it's, it's, an, it's an act of... of um, it's a social and, and aggressive, power-hungry, power play. It's, a, it's an attempt to grasp at the power and right and authority of the firstborn. That will ultimately, we're told later, be taken away from him. He's, he's challenging his father's authority, claiming his rights of the firstborn son. Those rights will be taken away from Reuben and given to Joseph's sons. We find that out later in Scripture. Reuben is making a premature assumption of his rights, assuming that he will have the rights of the firstborn. And so he goes ahead and lays claim to them early. When we think of, of opposition to God's people, we tend to think of those outside the church. Sometimes it actually comes up from inside the household of God, inside the family. But notice, do you remember the promise God made to Jacob? He, he reaffirms it in this passage. Be fruitful and multiply, He commands him in verse 11. Be fruitful and multiply, a nation, a company of nations shall come from you. Kings will come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, to your father and grandfather, I also give to you and will give to your offspring. Here's the point. They don't yet have it. There are no kings yet from Jacob's line. There are no nations and people of nations or company of nations yet from his line. They don't yet have the land. But look at chapter 36. Esau, Jacob's brother, they have land. They have 
If you read through the chapter, I just I challenge you this afternoon. I challenge you. Here's, I'm dropping the gauntlet right here. Read chapter 36 and pronounce all the names. Jacob has, it seems, there are more generations after Esau, I mean, than after Jacob. He seems, Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter at least. There may be other daughters as well. God had, had promised Jacob, that he was the, the chosen seed, that Esau had been rejected, and that Jacob, that God loved Jacob and had hated Esau. We're told that in Malachi and in Romans. And yet, as you read through chapter 36, Esau has, it appears, more descendants like stars in the sky and sand on the shore than Jacob does. In other words, you would think that those who oppose God's people are doing better than God's people. You're looking at Esau and his descendants and thinking, okay, wait, hold on. They have a lot more people, a lot more descendants than we do. I thought God said we were going to have nations and, and a company of nations. We're supposed to have all the... We're supposed to be fruitful and multiple. We're supposed to be the ones that, that have all the kids. Why does the world around me look like it's doing just fine? I'm going to give you the land. Jacob, you don't yet have the land. I'm going to give it to you. And kings will come from you. But look at, look at the description. Verse 31 of chapter 36. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Esau already has kings. He has clans and leaders of clans. He's far more fruitful, it appears, than Jacob. With kings and, oh, if they have kings and clans, guess what that also means? They have land. They have all the things that God promised Jacob that Jacob doesn't yet have. If you were... To, to put this into our terms, sometimes the world around us seems to be doing far better than the church. Sometimes we would think, I'm pretty sure God's blessing the world and not the church. Clearly our God is not paying attention. Clearly He's got something wrong. Or maybe, maybe I should just punt this church thing altogether and go join them because they are the ones that seem to be doing just fine. The problem is, that is all the reward they will have. They've gotten their reward. They've gotten their inheritance. It's all they're going to get. And do you remember the audience? Israel? They asked Edom, the Edomites, permission. The descendants of Esau are the Edomites. They asked permission to pass through their land on the way to the promised land. The Edomites basically said, if you so much as breathe our air, we will kill you. If your pinky toe touches our dirt, you're dead. So the Israelites pull up Siri. I need new directions around Edom to Canaan. Siri said, rerouting. This is encouraging and comforting to them. It, it should have been actually comforting to 
the Israelites as they seek this new path around Edom. Yes, they face foes. Yes, they're having to work around foes. Yes, the church has its enemies. But this foe has been faced before and lost. Despite their greatest fears, despite their largest foes, God is with His people. He forgets not His own. Despite our failures, despite our fears, despite our foes. How do I know this? Let me show you two verses. Back to verse 1 of chapter 35. Who initiated the relationship between God and Jacob? God does. Jacob didn't finally go to God and say, Okay, God, I've gotten my life straightened out. I've put away my foreign gods and so now I'm good and I'm clean and I've stopped doing all that bad stuff He told me not to do and um, my kids are, you know, mostly behaving and so now you should take me. God initiates. God says to Jacob, Oh, by the way, Jacob, you still haven't gotten to where you're supposed to be. Get up, pack up, and go up to Bethel and there build an altar to worship me. God commanded Jacob. God pursued Jacob. God initiated the relationship with Jacob. And He's done the same with you. You, and you know this, you were not seeking Him. You, weren't, you, you don't have His favor because you're that good. You don't have His favor because you already put away your foreign idols. Because you've stopped worshiping those false gods. You have His favor only by His grace and His mercy. God always initiates. But notice this, verse 1 of chapter 37. What God initiates, He finishes. What He starts, He completes. Because in verse 1 of chapter 37, Jacob is in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. He's in the promised land Esau, he's not. He's outside of it. He's gotten all the inheritance. He's gotten all the good that he's going to get. Jacob is in God's presence forever. He's in the promised land. He's in Canaan. Yes, he's still wandering and it's going to take a few more centuries before they finally settle and, and live there. But just as God delivered Jacob into Canaan, into the promised land, exactly where he was supposed to be, so too God would, would deliver the Israelites into the promised land, and so too He forgets not you, despite your failures, your fears, and your foes. Isn't that the picture of this table? This table says God initiates. We're coming to, to take communion because God sent His Son while we were still sinners. Unworthy, undeserving. And we're going to take this meal until He comes back. Which means this meal then not only reminds us that God initiates, but it also reminds us that what God starts, He completes. And until He does come back, this is part of the means of growing us, of conforming us into 
His image, of strengthening and encouraging our faith, our knowledge, our awareness that He really does forget not His own despite our failures, despite our fears, and despite our foes. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for the the promise found in Christ and in Him alone that we have a, a promise of forgiveness, that we have a a promise of Your presence, that You truly will guard and keep and be with us wherever, whenever, forever, despite our failures, despite our, our fears, and despite our foes. Father, would You use this, Your Word, to strengthen that faith? To be further encouraged by Your covenant promises made to us in Christ? that we might honor and worship and serve You and You alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.